Amen. Let me invite you to take your Bible and turn, please, to the Old Testament, to the book of Ruth, chapter number 2. Ruth, chapter 2. We are continuing our study, our journey through the book of Ruth this morning, and we're in the same text that we were in last week, um, and so I'm looking forward to this. When, when I was a, uh, a young boy, a little boy, um, mom washed our clothes in one of those old white ringer wash, washing machines. Uh, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I, for some reason growing up, I was mesmerized by appliances. Uh, not using them, uh, but playing with them. Uh, my Uncle Dennis can attest to the fact that he had to come take apart a washing machine one time because I'd gotten inside of it and got hung. Uh, I don't know if he remembers it or not, but uh, I do. Um, but mom would wash the clothes, and then before she would put them out on the clothesline to dry, she would put the shirts through the wringer, and I would watch. And I was always amazed that it seemed that no matter how many times she put a shirt through the wringer, she was always able to squeeze more water out of the shirt. You could put it through ten times, and every time, you would get more water. You would squeeze more water out of the shirt. Well, some texts of Scripture are what I call ringer texts. And what I mean by that is it doesn't matter how many times I've studied it, doesn't matter how many times I've read it, how many times I have preached it. Every time that I look at it, study it, and preach it anew, there seems to be more water that is squeezed out of the text, more gospel truth more glory that is shown forth from the text. And Ruth chapter 2 happens to be one of those ringer texts. We were in Ruth 2 last week, and I told you last week that I couldn't finish everything I wanted to say, so we would be back in it this morning, and thus we are. And so what I want to do is I want to begin reading in Ruth chapter 2, and I'll read the entire chapter this morning, and we will look at Finding Grace. Scripture says in verse 1, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning and now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, 
Go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to them, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat down with the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had leftover. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also put out some from among the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they've finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. A picture is worth a thousand words. We understand that idiom. We have used that idiom, and we know that complex truths can sometimes be better understood, better grasped, if we have a picture rather than just an explanation. One of the things I love about the Old Testament is that the Old Testament is filled with pictures of the gospel, pictures that help us understand the gospel, pictures that help us appreciate the gospel. Throughout all of the Old Testament, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that you find in the New Testament is illustrated, pictured, put on display for us to see and to appreciate. And in Ruth chapter 2, there are several pictures that are drawn out for us. Last week, we saw the picture of God's sovereign purposes and his providence. As we watch Ruth, who goes into a particular field, what seemed to be by chance, but she ends up in the field of a man named Boaz, who was one of her family's redeemers, 
who was a wealthy man and who could redeem her back and redeem all that she and her family had lost. And we saw that not the we saw last week that God is completely sovereign, completely in control over all things, even the smallest details and decisions in our life. God's hand is working and moving and bringing it about to complete his purpose for us and through us. But that's not all Ruth 2 is about. It's not just a picture of God's sovereignty and God's providence. But there's another picture that is found here in Ruth 2. And it's the picture that I want us to focus on this morning. And it is a picture of the grace of God. In fact, the grace of God saturates this chapter. It, it, it begins in verse number 2 with Ruth asking a question. Asking Naomi if she should go out and glean in the field. And she says this. She said, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Favor. I think the King James says grace. But in verse 10, after she meets Boaz, look what she says. It says she fell down on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes? Verse 13, she answers again and she says, I have found favor in your eyes. The word that's translated favor there is the Hebrew word hen. And that word literally means acceptance. It means grace. And so what we find is that we find Ruth starting the day out, wondering, will I find grace in anyone's eyes today? Will someone accept me and allow me to enter their field to harvest grain? In the middle of the day, she's astonished because she has found grace in the eyes of the most eligible bachelor in Bethlehem, a man by the name of Boaz. And then again, she's still astonished later because she keeps reminding herself, I have found favor in his eyes. It is the same word that is used in Genesis 6 of Noah when God determined to destroy the world by the flood. The Bible says, but Noah found favor. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to look at Ruth 2. And I want us to consider the grace of God. Because Ruth 2 shows us how God's grace works and how God's grace moves in our life. And what God's grace does for us, those who are undeserving. And then I want us, hopefully, to have a greater appreciation for the gospel. And here's my prayer. I'm just going to be upfront and honest. I'm praying today that there will be people who will find in this service exactly what Ruth found in Boaz's field. I pray that there will be people who, in, on this day, will find the exact same thing that Ruth found when she was gleaning barley in the fields of Boaz. I pray that people walk from this place, as Ruth walked out of the field of Boaz, astonished at the fact that they have received and experienced the grace of God. So what's so great about grace? What does it tell us about grace? Well, first, this chapter tells us that grace seeks the outcast. Grace seeks the outcast. Four different times 
in Ruth chapter one or chapter two, we are reminded that Ruth was a Moabite. As a matter of fact, verse two calls her Ruth the Moabite. In verse six, the uh, Boaz's foreman says that the he calls her the young Moabite woman, and then he says that she came from the country of Moab. The author in verse twenty one reminds us again of Ruth the Moabite. Now, what does that mean to us? It may not mean a hill of beans to you when you walk into church, but it means everything. Because Ruth was not originally from Jerusalem. She was not originally from Bethlehem. She was from the land of Moab. Moab was the people who began as the result of Lot's incestuous relationship with one of his daughters. The Ammonites and the Moabites were birthed from Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughters. And the Moabites were were stooped in Canaanite fertility, God-cult worship. They were a sinful people. They were a wicked people. And they were a people who God had condemned. God had demanded no Moabite would enter into the courts of God's people up to ten generations which was a way of saying they are forever separated from God and forever separated from God's people and from God's promises. To be a Moabite was to be an outcast. To be a Moabite was to be a stranger. To be a Moabite was to be someone who was on the outside looking in. And do you know what happened to this Moabite? As she goes out into the fields looking for a place to glean so she can get enough food for her and her mother-in-law, Naomi, to survive, she's out working when Boaz comes to the field to inspect what's going on. And as she's out there working, all of a sudden, he sees her. He pinpoints her. He sees her in the field. He then pursues her. He walks to where she is. And then he provides for her. He speaks to her and he says to her, don't go to any other field. You stay in my field and I will take care of you. Now here's my question. Who spoke to whom first? Did Boaz speak to Ruth first or did Ruth speak to Boaz first? The answer is simple. Boaz first spoke to Ruth. One of the first acts of kindness that is seen from Boaz to Ruth is the mere fact that he walks up to her and that he speaks to her first. Um, I oftentimes say this about Shelly. She's in children's church, so she can't get mad at me. Uh, The first day I saw her was I preached at her church. She was standing in the foyer. And again, I walk up to her and I give her the line of all lines, the Joey line from Friends. How you doing? (laughs) Hey, It works. 18 years later, she's still mine. (laughs) And I always have to remind Shelly, you love me because I first loved you. I mean, I pursued you. And the same is true when it comes to us. You may not be a Moabite this morning. You may not have the, the, the ancestry that Ruth had. But I promise you this. Just as Ruth was an outcast because of her birth, you and I are outcasts before God because of our births. Adam sold us all down the river. Because of Adam's sin, we are all born in sin. We are all born condemned before God. 
We are all born separated from God. Paul, or, uh, David said, in sin was I conceived, and in iniquity did my mother bring me forth. Isaiah says, your iniquity has separated you and your God, and your sins has caused him to turn his face from you. And you know what else? Ruth was also an enemy of God because she was a Moabite. The Moabites were the sworn enemies of the people of God. And by birth, Ruth inherits that legacy. Do you know what the Bible says about you and me? Do you know what the Bible says about sinners like us? The Bible says that we are God's enemies. We were at war with God. Adam declared war on God whenever he committed high treason in the Garden of Eden. But the glorious news about grace is this. God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For scarcely for a good man one would die and peradventure for a good man some would even dare die. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were his enemies, Christ dies for us, Romans 5 says. And so grace reaches out to us. Grace seeks us even when we're separated from God, even when we are enemies of God, even when we are condemned before God. Everyone thinks you have to die and stand in judgment in order to be condemned before God. Such is not the case. Beloved, we stand condemned already if we are outside of Christ. Scripture says that Jesus did not come to condemn the world because the world was condemned already. And this is the condemnation, Jesus says. The world, light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. We are already condemned if we are outside of Christ. But the glorious news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ looks at people who are separated from him, who are condemned, and who are his enemies. And he demonstrates grace to us outcasts. How did he do it? What did he do? Well, 2,000 years ago, he stands off the throne in heaven, lays aside his heavenly glory, wraps himself in human flesh, climbs down Jacob's ladder, lives upon this earth for 30 years, 33 years, and dies on a Roman cross in our sin, in our place, suffers the wrath of God for us so that he might be gracious towards sinners like you and sinners like me. He seeks sinners. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, and he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Beloved, the Lord of the harvest seeks outcasts. Are you an outcast? Well, guess what? You are in great company. But secondly, grace not only seeks the outcast, grace also surprises the recipient. It surprises the recipient. Here's what happens. Long story short, Boaz comes to Ruth and he tells Ruth, Ruth, don't go to any other field. You just stay in my field, okay? Matter of fact, if you get thirsty, don't stand there and be thirsty. My men's drawn some water over here. Go drink all you want. You, and, 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 and you're by yourself, you're vulnerable, stay with these women. Furthermore, Ruth, I've got enough fields to keep you busy for a long, long time. Just stay in my field. She's astonished. And look what she says to him in verse 10 after he shows her grace. 
Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? I am a foreigner. Charles Spurgeon says, The more grace we have, the less we shall think of ourselves. For grace reveals our impurities. You know, she just could not get over the fact that Boaz would be gracious toward her. Who am I, she says, that I would receive favor at your hand? I'm a stranger. And you know what you find throughout Scripture? You find that those who receive grace are oftentimes those who are the least or who are the most unlikely and those who are the least deserving, and they're the most surprised. The little crippled man who stood before King David in 2 Samuel 9. What was Mephibosheth's cry to David? Who am I that you would look upon such a dead dog as me? What was the cry of the prodigal whenever he returns home after spending time in the hog pens of the world? I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. Make me a hired servant. Was it not the same cry of the Syrophoenician woman when she said these words to the Lord? Don't the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table? Her humility caused Christ to say, Oh, I've not found so great faith in all of Israel. And is it not the same thing that the dying thief next to Jesus proclaimed when he looked at the other thief and he says, Don't you fear God? God, seeing we are in the same condemnation, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, if anybody ever died easy, that man did. For Jesus looks at him and he says, today you shall be with me in paradise. All of those people have something in common. And that is they received grace and they could not get over the fact that they had received it. Listen to me. I marvel at God's grace. It's scandalous. <laughs> it's the great scandal of, of, of history and time and eternity that the holy God of heaven would be gracious and kind to a worm, a sinner, a wretch like me. I can't get over it. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name? Would care to feel my hurt. Would care to know my pain. Who am I? Beloved, she was surprised by grace. And grace still surprises people. But thirdly, grace not only surprises the recipient and seeks the outcast. Grace satisfies the hungry. Now, it's mealtime in verse 14. And it says, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in wine. And so she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. Ruth is out working in the middle of the day and I, I promise you this, she probably didn't pack her lunch when she left Naomi's presence. And I don't know how many times her belly had growled throughout the day from hunger. I don't know when the last time she had a good meal after she left Moab, I don't know what she may have thought when she smelled the grain roasting. She smelled the aroma and she thought, oh, I would like to have some of that, but I don't have any. And then all of a sudden, Boaz says, hey, Ruth, it's lunchtime, come eat. 
She comes over there and she sits down and she eats and she eats and she eats some roasted grain, dips her bread in wine, and the Bible says she's satisfied. But it doesn't stop there. Boaz just keeps piling it on. Um, that was one of the things Boaz could have done well in eastern Kentucky. Uh, my mama and papa, uh, bless their hearts, when you, go, when you went to their house, you ate and you ate and you ate until you couldn't eat anymore, and then she made, they made you eat more. I mean, it didn't matter. Have you eat? There's food on the table. All the time, you eat and eat and eat. And then guess what you do when there's stuff left over? You pack it up and take it with you. That's exactly what Boaz does here with Ruth. She leaves, like I said last week, she leaves with 50 pounds of grain and leftovers from Malone. She is set for a while. But here's the thing. The Bible says she was satisfied. Do you know the Bible oftentimes uses the imagery of hunger and satisfaction to paint the picture of the satisfaction that God gives to those who trust in Him? You see, the Bible knows that there is a hunger in the soul of man that can be filled by nothing else except for that which he gives. And if you're honest this morning, you will admit that there is a void. There is a hunger in your soul for something more, especially if you don't know Christ. And here's the thing. In order to find satisfaction, you can only find it in his field. The world says to us, you can, your hunger can be filled in the fields of sex, but that will only lead you unsatisfied. That will never satisfy your soul. It can only be filled in his field. The world says that your hunger can be filled in the field of money. Get more money, accumulate more money, but I promise you this, if you glean in the field of money, you will leave hungry. It will not satisfy you. There's only satisfaction that can be found in his field. The world says, if you will glean in the field of success, you will be satisfied. But I promise you this, the fields of success put people out one after the other that are still hungry, that are not satisfied, still have something that is missing. And thus I say, the only way that your heart can be satisfied is if you glean in his field, if you come to him and partake of his table, only then can you be satisfied truly. The psalmist said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. My soul shall be satisfied as with fat and rich food. A call to worship said that they will feast on the abundance of your house. And even Jesus himself stood in John chapter 6 and he proclaimed, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of me shall never hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What's he saying? He's saying there is satisfaction that can be found in only one place and that is in a relationship with him because grace is the only thing that can satisfy a hungry soul. Grace seeks us, surprises us, satisfies us, but it also secures the vulnerable. Look what happens in verse 15 and 16. After she finishes eating, the Bible says when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also put out some from among the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not 
rebuke her. She leaves. And Boaz, even without Ruth noticing it, says, uh, let her glean all the fields she wants. Throw some on the ground. That way she can pick it up. And I mean, in one day, she, she gathers up about 50 pounds worth of grain. But there's something else Boaz does for Ruth. He knows Ruth is vulnerable. She's a very attractive young woman. And she's alone, which is a bad recipe in this day and time. Remember, this takes place in the days when the judges ruled Israel. And we saw just how sinfully wicked those days were. When priests are chopping up women into 12 parts and sending them to the 12 tribes of Israel, it's a dangerous time for a young, beautiful, attractive woman to be walking around by herself. And so here's what Boaz says. You're not going to walk around by yourself anymore. You're going to stay with my women. You're going to stay in my fields. You're going to stay under the protection of my men. And I've told my men, you don't touch her and you take care of her. You know the glorious thing about grace? is that grace not only saves us, grace also secures us. You see, Ruth starts chapter 2, she's vulnerable. But by the end of chapter 2, she's untouchable. You can't touch her. Why? Because Boaz has said she is not to be touched. And the glorious truth about grace is this. You and I face foes every single day. We have great enemies that are waiting behind every corner, waiting to, to surprise us, waiting to ambush us. We're attacked daily by our, our internal foe, the flesh. We're attacked by our external foe, foe, the world. And we're attacked by the infernal foe, the devil. And do you know there's not one of us in here today who, are strong, who is strong enough to withstand the onslaught from the world, the flesh, and the devil. No way that we could do it. We are more vulnerable in our own strength than Ruth walking down the street by herself. But can I tell you something? Do you know why I am still saved today? Do you know why I am still a part of the kingdom of God today? Do you want to know why that I am still a son of God today? Because the same grace that saved me is the same grace that secures me. The same Lord who called me is the same Lord who protects me. Because he is the one who says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they hear my voice and they follow me. I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. For my Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. Ephesians tells us that he has sealed us with the Holy Spirit of God. How long? For a week? For a day? For a decade? No. Until the day of redemption. Until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and calls his people to himself. No wonder the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God who intercedes for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Nope. Distress? 
No. Turmoil? No. Persecution? No. Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Sword? No. As it is written, we are counted all day long as sheep for the slaughter. Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he concludes it. No, I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus the Lord. Beloved, if I could lose my salvation, I would have lost it a long time ago, and you would have as well. But the only reason we are still saved is because when God saves us, he says, you can't have him. He's mine. He's mine. Thus, Luther says, and though this world with devil's field should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Beloved, we sing it with amazing grace. Twas grace that brought me safe thus far. And what's the rest of it? And grace will lead me home. Grace secures the vulnerable. She's protected. But grace also stirs the hopeless. She comes home. She's got 50 pounds of grain. She's got leftovers from lunch. Enough to satisfy even her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Naomi starts to ask her some questions. What's going on here? And she tells her, oh, I found this field and this man's name is Boaz and he told me not to work in any other field. And when she hears the name Boaz, Naomi, for the first time in the book of Ruth, has hope. She hears the name Boaz and her bitterness starts to fade away. You see, it's been a pretty rough decade for Naomi. Naomi has buried her husband Naomi has buried her two sons. And Naomi feels as if God is out to get her. As a matter of fact, she tells the ladies in chapter 1, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasantness. Call me Mara, which means bitterness, because God has been bitter to me. And here she is, sad, upset, disgruntled, disappointed. And Ruth comes, and with the mention of Boaz, everything changes. She goes from speaking bitterly to speaking blessings. Because she said, the Lord bless him. You don't know, Ruth, but guess what? He's a relative of ours. He's a relative of my husband, Elimelech. Close relative. In fact, he's one of our redeemers. I tell you what, whatever he tells you to do, do it. I don't care what it is. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Obey him. And you know, I really believe for the first time, in the book of Ruth. You can sense it in her words. I think Naomi smiles. Naomi's heart leaps within her chest. Naomi knows. She knows that because of the Redeemer, there is now hope for them. And the same grace that protected Ruth and the same grace that was kind to Ruth is now starting to spill out over into Naomi. She's hopeful. She's pleasant now. She's given her instructions on what to do. And you know the same thing is true for us as well. There's only one person 
who can change our despair to delight. Only one person who can change our heartaches to hope. Only one person who can turn our bitterness into blessing. That is our Redeemer. Not Boaz in Ruth 2, but the one whom he pictures. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Only he is able to save. Only he is able to instill the hope that she experienced. And you know what? If you think the grace that Boaz showed Ruth is great, you ain't seen nothing until you realize the grace that Jesus shows his people, that Jesus shows towards sinners. Matt Chandler spoke about an event that took place in his life when he was younger. He knew a a young woman by the name of Kim. Uh, She was a little bit older than Matt. Uh, She uh, was unmarried. She had a child. She worked. And she, matter of fact, she worked at a bar. She didn't go to church. She'd never been raised around church. And and Matt wanted to share the gospel with her. He wanted her to to know Jesus. And yes, she had a checkered past. Uh, But he got excited because of a concert that was coming to town where they lived. And uh, he talked her into going, even bought the tickets for her. And it turned out to be what was called a Love Wins or Love Waits rally. Uh, he got there. He said the music was great. It was wonderful. It was kind. Uh, great worship atmosphere. But then the speaker came. And he said when the speaker came to speak, um, he said it, was, it wasn't the gospel at all. He said it was just a bunch of moralism said, basically, the thrust of his message to teens and to others was this. Uh, you better not sleep around or you'll end up with herpes. Or you'll end up with syphilis. How's that? He said, for an hour and a half. That's all he talked about. And he said his big illustration was this. He got up and he took a rose. He said he had this rose. This rose. He said he described it to everybody. He held it in his hand. He caressed it. Talked about the beauty of it. How wonderful it looked. And he said, this rose is so wonderful, I want you to have a chance to look at it and to hold it and to caress it. And so he gave it out to the crowd and went on with his message. And people were holding the rose and then passing it on, passing it on. And, and at the end of his message, he stopped and he said, oh, wait, where's the rose? And someone back in the crowd had the rose and they said, I've got it. And they said, send it back up here to me. And so they sent the rose back up there to him. And this time when he got the rose, petals were missing. The stem was broken off, and it was ugly. And basically, he held it up, and he said, at the beginning, it was beautiful, and it was wonderful and great. But look at it now after it's passed through everybody. Who would want this rose? Who would want this? And he closed out the service. Chandler said that as they were going home that day, that night, Kim was very quiet. She hardly spoke. And he said, he asked her, he said, well, what would you think? And he said, she said this, Matt, am I a dirty rose? And would nobody want me? And he said at that moment his heart was crushed because he realized something. The speaker never even shared the gospel. Because the scandal of the gospel and the scandal of grace is that the Lord Jesus wants the rose. He loves the rose. He died to purchase the rose. And the glory of the grace of God is that the grace of God looks at a church house filled with sinners like me. 
Sinners like you. And the grace of God says, I want you. 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 I'll take you. Just the way you are. With your brokenness. With your sin. With your heartbreak. With all your disappointment. I want you. That's what grace is. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. But God is gracious to us. God's grace is experienced only through one person. And that person is the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you know what? I feel like Naomi a little bit this morning. I feel like I've just been feasting on leftovers all week. <laughs> after, after being with Justin and the Lord saving him, I was eating on leftovers. And then being with Linda, the Lord saving Linda, I, I'm feasting on leftovers. And, 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 and here's what I've noticed. Here's what I've seen this week. I've seen grace do this. I've seen grace give peace to a troubled heart. And I saw grace put a smile on Naomi's face. That's what grace can do. And the good news is this. The same Jesus who saved me, who saved others, who saved Judd, who saved Linda, that same Jesus will save you if you'll trust him. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do this morning. I'm going to ask you to trust him. If you believe he died for you and that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day, I'm going to ask you to put your faith and your trust and your confidence in him. And I'm going to ask you to confess him as your Lord and as your Savior. And I promise you, he will forgive you. I promise you, no matter how damaged you feel you are, he will forgive you and he will save you. And he will do it today. So my question is this. In this barley field we call a church house, will you leave here having found grace? Let's pray.